Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. It is a privilege to come together on the Lord's Day and to break bread with the believers, to remember the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and uh, to hear the preaching of his word. So let's do that now. Let's continue our worship as we turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at 1 through 16 these past two weeks, but this morning we're going to read tw- uh, 11 through 16. So if you'd please turn Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. And he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what Every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Heavenly Father, we do consider it a tremendous privilege, not only to come together in this place and this time, but to be your children uh, at all. So thankful to be saved by your amazing grace alone. So thankful to be washed in the precious blood of Christ alone and we just give this time to you and ask that you will be glorified in it. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, what do you think of when you hear the word minister? What do you think of when you hear the word minister? The guy at church in charge of all the religious stuff? Uh, the guy who gets paid? The guy who preaches every Sunday, distributes the Lord's Supper, the guy whose name is on the sign out front and all over the website, uh, the guy who holds the church together, all things go through him, and he has the final say on everything from the budget to the blinds, from the finances to the furniture, the guy who visits the congregants, cares for the widows, feeds the poor, visits the sick, brings the meals, does the evangelism, teaches the children's. Uh, the children, organizes the potlucks, leads the committees, does the counseling, the man that, that commends the missionaries, that does the hiring and firing of the office staff. Is he the minister? Is that what Paul just said in verse 12? No, that's one of the biggest lies in Christendom. Building everything around one guy, around one gifted man, Churches and rising and falling based on one personality. That's the CEO mentality. 
That's the corporate model. That's the cultish model. But it's not the biblical model. The biblical model is right here in Ephesians chapter 4, which says, To the individual members of the church, the resurrected Christ gave gifts, spirit-enabled gifts, which are to be used for the building up of the body. If you think that that's the role of one man, or even a plurality of certain men, to carry out all the ministry of the church on their own, my friends, you have been deceived. And my aim over the years has not only been to de-emphasize the bogus clergy-laity distinction, but to destroy it altogether. Even if it should cost me my own position in this chapel someday. I have no desire to be a head pastor or a lead pastor or gag a senior pastor or chief pastor. But I don't think many of you want that either, especially when Peter says there is only one chief shepherd. There is only one senior pastor, and that is Christ himself. Our, one of our distinctives is that we operate under a true plurality of pastors, co-shepherding and overseeing a local body of ministers. And this is a distinctive that, distinctive that I'm eager to further solidify today by looking at our passage in Ephesians chapter 4 here. Just a brief recap of our time together last week. If you can remember during our time last week, we looked at a number of key aspects in verses 1 through 12. We saw Paul's exhortation to the saints at Ephesus and all saints since, every believer in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, every man, woman, or child who has been purchased, redeemed, reconciled to their creator by the precious blood of Christ, every man, woman, or child who has been called by God to so great a salvation from God, from his wrath, by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We saw Paul's exhortation for them and for all of us to then walk in a manner worthy of that calling. For the chosen of God to walk in a manner that is similar to that of Christ. To walk in a manner that will bring glory and honor and majesty to the one who, by his grace alone, chose to deliver us out of the pit. And because of this, because he had to choose us, because he had to call us out of our darkness, we have no reason at all to be boastful or prideful or haughty or rude or jealous or bitter or contentious, but rather we should be humble. Humble. Walk in humility, he says. We should be gentle in our dealings with one another. We should be patient. We should bear with one another in love. And we should be eager, eager to uh, not create, but to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't make that unity We just maintain that unity. Paul spoke a lot about that unity in the first 10 verses. He laid out the foundation of our unity. We are all united as one body. We are all joined together as one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is not only the guarantee of our individual salvation, but also the agent who unites us all, who connects us all together for the glory of the head. We then saw the the focus shift from the foundations of the united body Um, the one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father, what we all have in common to individual gifts given by the Lord to each one of his children. 
Every member of the body of Christ has been given at least one specific, distinct serving gift, which will be used for the edification and the building up, not of themselves, but of the body. We do not earn these gifts. We do not choose these gifts. We are graciously given these gifts by the victorious Christ. Specific gifts to specific saints in specific amounts given by our Lord. Now, if one person fails to utilize the gift that's been given to them, it's not only an act of disobedience to their Lord, but it's also detrimental to the rest of the body. As we know that in order for a body to function properly, all members must be working together, just like our human body, right? If my entire body was in tip-top shape, but my kidneys aren't functioning as they, as they should, what does that mean? Well, ultimately, my, body won't, my whole body won't function as it should, and I will suffer, and I will probably die. If my pinky toe is harmed in some horrific bouncy castle incident, then what happens to the rest of the body? It has to compensate for the one that is lacking. Therefore, the whole body doesn't operate as efficiently as it was designed to operate. Likewise, every member of Christ's body is joined together. We are united, but we are also individual members. We're unique. We're special. Each one of us is is gifted and commanded to carry out our God-ordained roles or else the rest of the body will suffer. You see? We have each been given gifts. We don't want to be a part of a church who one preacher likened to a football game, 22 men on the field in desperate need of rest, 72,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise. We don't want to be a part of a church like that. Why not? Well, because that's not the Lord's will for us. Every member, every spirit-indwelled member has been gifted for the service of the body, resulting in the glorification of the head. So the question is, what about you? What about you? Do you know what your gifting is? And are you utilizing your God-given grace gift? Or are you sitting in the bleachers Waiting, watching a few folks who are perceived to be more vital to the body carry out their gifts. If that's the case, then you've missed it. Life in the church is not a spectator sport. It's not. The rest of the body needs you. All of you to function. We need you to be involved. At the end of our time last week, we were given reasons for this, weren't we, Paul? Paul goes from the unity of the body as a whole the foundation of of our faith, which unites us, to distinct individual gifting according to his measure and sovereign will. And then, in verse 11, he shifts uh, his focus back to the body as a whole. As, beyond the calling, redeeming, eternally reconciling the church to the Father, the victorious Lord gave even more gifts to his united body. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Again, if there's anything that I want you to take away from from our time together last week and this, it's these two verses. Not my words, not my illustrations or quotes or little stories, but this section of Scripture right here is specifically these two verses. And he gave, this is the resurrected Christ, uh, the ascended Christ actually, he gave the apostles, the prophets, 
the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry or service, for the building up the body of Christ. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers as gifts to his church as a whole in order that they, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, would equip, prepare, make ready the members of the church, the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. This is a monumentally significant uh, text to all of us in here, all true believers in here. This is an extremely important biblical teaching. And this entire doctrine of every member ministry revolves around the equipping of the saints. And we'll see why this morning, okay? I've broken down the remainder of this text, verses uh, 11 through 16, into three points. The process of equipping the saints for the ministry, how Christ does it, Uh, the purpose of equipping the saints for the ministry, why he does it, and finally, the product. The product of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. What is the result? Okay? First of all, let's look at the process. How he has chosen to equip his saints to be ministers. Let's examine these gifts given to the, the United Church. Okay? First, the Apostles, capital A. The 12 apostles, only 12, after Matthias replaced Judas, and you can argue whether or not Paul was the 13th. He was an apostle, to be sure. Either way, it's clear from the scriptures that these were a chosen group of men who were sent out by Christ in order to perform specific tasks, okay? To lay the foundation of the church, to authoritatively speak on behalf of God himself. Men who were even given the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders which were used to validate the message that they were proclaiming. Namely, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah of God. Repent and believe in the gospel. These men were given temporary gifts which were used in a specific place during a specific time for a specific purpose. And they had no successors. There are no apostles today. Let me say that again for the people in the back. There are no apostles today. There is no need for apostles today, not apostles in this sense. The office of apostle has ceased. How do we know? Well, first of all, one of the main qualifications of holding the office of apostle was that you you would have had to have seen the risen Christ. Second of all, you had to have, have been sent personally by the risen Christ. And there is nobody living today who has met these qualifications. Now, some people may think they've seen and been sent by Christ, but they're either not all there mentally or more likely they're being influenced by demonic forces. Certainly deceived. Even Martin Luther, one of the most important and influential men in the history of the church, recognized this truth. In fact, he once wrote of an experience where he had actually seen a supposed vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Quote, On Good Friday last, I, I being in my chamber in fervent prayer, contemplating with myself how Christ my Savior on the cross suffered and died for our sins, there suddenly appeared on the wall a bright vision of our Savior Christ with the five wounds steadfastly looking upon me as if it had been Christ himself corporally. At first sight, I thought this had been some sort of a celestial revelation, but I reflected 
that it must needs be an illusion and juggling of the devil. For Christ appeared to us in his word and in a meaner and more humble form. Therefore, I spake to the vision thus, avoid thee, confounded devil. I know no other Christ than he who was crucified and who in his word is pictured and presented unto me. Whereupon the image vanished, clearly showing of whom it came. Martin Luther said that. Now, we have people today who flock to see an image of Christ on a piece of toast. I saw an article a while back where a lady in London said she saw Christ's face on her sock. Then he showed up on a three-cheese pizza near Brisbane. Frying pans, ironing boards, Kit Kat bars, even moldy walls. And people will come from all over the world just to catch a glimpse of it. And here is Luther, Martin Luther, with an actual vision of what appeared to be the risen Christ, wounds and all, and he speaks to it and says, Be gone, Satan. Scripture is sufficient for me. The Scriptures are sufficient for me. This is how Christ reveals himself to us. Not on our tube socks. Not through visions or voices or even other men. Only through his word. There are none who have seen Christ nor been sent personally by Christ. Therefore, there are no apostles today. Now, one might argue that there are sent ones after the 13, and that's certainly true in one sense, but they're not sent by Christ. They're sent by the church. These quote, small a apostles were even in the New Testament, but there is nobody on earth today, nor has there been since the death of the last apostle who holds the office of apostle. No apostles for 1,900 years, period, period. Nobody alive today who fits this title given in verse 11. Let's move on to the prophets. Again, there are no more prophets today. The, This was another temporary office for a certain place at a certain time for a certain purpose. Again, we have to remember the early churches we see in Acts. They didn't have this letter to the Ephesians. They didn't have Romans or 1 Corinthians or 1 Peter or Titus. They didn't have the New Testament. So the Lord gave these men and some women, uh, these prophets, as gifts to the church to speak on his behalf to those who didn't have his written revelation in its entirety. These churches that were being formed, they needed guidance. Uh, They needed instruction. And so God would either allow them to give his revelation and guidance in the forms of either uh, predictions of things to come, foretelling, or godly analysis of specific situations, foretelling, right? Foretelling and foretelling. A prophet was one who spoke for God, who unfolded the mind of God. Remember Agabus in Acts chapter 11, one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. He gave new revelation from God, and wouldn't you know it, that prophecy came true. Later in chapter 21, and coming to us, Agabus took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus saith the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. 
Everyone's freaking out about it. And Paul says, what are you trying to do to me here? You're crying for me? You're shedding tears for me? I'll gladly be bound for the sake of the gospel. I'll die for the sake of the gospel. The Holy Spirit didn't say not to go. He just said I was going to be bound and delivered to the Gentiles, right? I'm okay with that. In fact, they're my target audience anyway. You'd be doing me a favor. And that's exactly what happened, right? He stood before a Roman centurion. He stood before King Agrippa and Bernice, proclaiming the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. Agabus was right on. He was right on. And that's what true prophecy is, okay? New revelation from God. Accurate revelation from God. And that's one of the ways we know we do not have any more prophets today. The folks who claim to give new revelation from God are quite often wrong, mostly wrong, almost always wrong. And therefore, they are false prophets. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And they only deserve death. There are no prophets today, only false prophets, and they abound of course. Now it's worth mentioning that we are told of a time in which the Lord will one day reinstate this office during the tribulation period when the church is already gone, by the way. But as of now, this office is non-existent in this world. Okay? Inspired revelation is only found on the pages of scripture. And that's it. There is no new revelation from God. No new revelation from God. Paul says to the Galatians, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul's saying, even if I come back and I tell you something contrary to what I preached in contradiction to what I'm writing you right now, I should be considered anathema, cursed by God and the furthest point of all of creation from his common grace and love forever, for all time. So if somebody comes to you and they say, I have a new prophecy. You should say, really? I'd like to hear it. And then what's the first thing you should do anyhow? Check it against Scripture. Check it against Scripture. Actually, you should probably just turn around and run away. Be safer for you. No new revelation today. No prophets today. Zero. None. However, these two offices are directly connected to the next two, uh, or three, depending on who you ask, roles which are still in place today. Let's t- look together at how they're connected. Paul says he gave the, uh, Christ gave the evangelists. These would be men and women who go from town to town preaching uh, the euangelion, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of Philip and others. They would spread the word of God from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And evangelists still spread the gospel of God, right? They still take the word of God to the ends of the earth. We may even have some gifted evangelists here among us today. I know that we do. But every one of us should be ready and willing to share our faith at any moment. Every believer should be prepared to give the reason for the hope that is within them at any moment. But these folks, these folks have been given by the victorious Lord as a gift to the church for the specific purpose of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry through their proclamation of the gospel. This is a permanent gift. Okay? It's still being used today. Think of missionaries. Think of local church evangelists. They go out. They spread the word of God. Uh, 
equipping the body through bold proclamation of the gospel, bringing unbelievers and new converts into the church, into the body, connecting them with the rest of the saints who then do the ongoing work of ministering to them for the glory of the head. You see how that works? They bring them in. The saints minister to them. Elders, pastors, we'll get to this in a moment, equip them to do so. Christ gave evangelists to his church as a gift. Then you have shepherds and teachers. Now some join these two offices together and say that they are shepherd hyphen teachers or pastor hyphen teachers as if this was one office, but I can see that and I actually held to that view at one point, but I would tend to agree with those who, t- who take this in its plain literal interpretation which sees these as two separate roles, okay? Pastors and teachers were given to the church. Daniel Wallace, author of Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, demonstrated that the grammatical structure, the shepherds and teachers, indicates that all gifted shepherds are teachers, but not all teachers are shepherds. Okay? That's right. All pastors, all elders must be able to teach, but not all teachers are able to shepherd. I've seen it before. It's not pretty. So we see five gifts given to the church as a whole. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Alex Strauch has said, quote, The purpose for giving the shepherds and teachers is for them to equip slash prepare the believers for the work of the service in order to build up the body of Christ. We dare not miss the utterly profound significance of this passage of Scripture for the upbuilding of the local church. End quote. The role of a shepherd is to feed the flock, lead the flock, care for the flock, to protect the flock, even. And teachers are also given to instruct the flock. But how? How do shepherds and teachers equip the saints? What is the process by which the saints are equipped? You tell me. Through the faithful declaration and exposition of the full counsel of God as revealed in the scriptures. This is how we equip you. You see, what do all of these offices here in verse 11 have in common? What ties them all together? They are all utterance gifts. They are all speaking gifts. And what's the thread that connects them all? The word of God. The word of God. The apostles and prophets gave the word of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that the church, the collective people of, of God, both Jew and Gentile, the body was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They revealed, spoke, and recorded the very words of God without miscalculation or variation all the way to the finalization of the revelation, right? And Once that foundation had been laid in the form of New Testament books, there was no longer a need for people to give new revelation. It's done. When evangelists proclaim the gospel, they're proclaiming that same revealed word of God from the apostles. The shepherds then feed and lead and care for and protect according to that same revealed word of God. They don't give new revelation, shepherds and teachers, Uh, shepherds and teachers like evangelists don't give new revelation, but we we simply tell the body, thus saith the Lord in his written word. We're not making it up as we go along here. 
And the source of their key content is derived from the scriptures alone. This is how saints are equipped for the work of the ministry, the, the revealed word of God. That's, that's the process of equipping the saints here. So how do we apply this practically speaking? Well, first of all, again, if you, are truly, if you truly consider yourself a part of this body, uh, begin to or continue to serve in some capacity. Uh, serve the body. Your gift will be made known. Now, knowing that you're the, the primary responsibility of your pastors or your overseers, there's only two out of five of us here today, uh, but the, the, the primary responsibility of your pastors or your overseers including this preaching pastor whom the church supports at the moment, which doesn't make me, the spe- make me special, it just means I'm the guy that talks the most. Uh, but it, it's our job as elders to equip you for the work of the ministry, primarily through the ex- exposition and application of this book, not just by our clever ideas or strategies. Again, S. Lewis Johnson says this, that's their one duty, to equip the saints, that the saints might do the work of the ministry, that the body of Christ might be edified. So that the work of the ministry is not the work of one gifted man. He's simply to equip them from the word of God. He's to teach the scriptures so that they, built up in the faith, strengthened, given doctrine of biblical knowledge and the application of it, are then able to carry on ministry. Everyone is a minister in the body of Christ. We equip you. That's how I earn my wages, uh, personally. And it's not awkward to talk about. I spend most of my weeks uh, preparing to equip all of you through the faithful exposition of God's word. Now, if I start to stray from that focus at all, you should fire me. And I'm not kidding you. But every one of us ought to hunger and thirst for the preached word of God. Long for it, like, like you long for nothing else in this world, knowing that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, complete, equipped for every good work. This is how the one who gave you your life and sustains your life as you sit there at this very moment and has the ability to grant you eternal life in his presence, has chosen to speak to you today, has chosen to equip you, to enable you to carry out his will for your remaining time on this earth. It's right here. The, this is divinely inspired, which means it's absolutely sufficient. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's perfect. And it's complete. It's complete. So, if you know folks going to a church where some guy gets up there, he reads a verse or two, then fills the rest of the time with his own personal stories or jokes or opinions or insights or even worse, if he claims to be receiving then giving you new revelation from God, you should tell them to leave that church and find somewhere, anywhere, where they'll be fed by faithful proclamation of the written word of God so that they can be fully equipped for their ministry. Okay? It's of utmost importance, importance to every true believer, as we've seen, every called, chosen, born-again, spirit-indwelled man or woman of God, that they be properly equipped 
for the ministry. Okay, it's extremely important. So, we've seen the process. Now we'll see the purpose. What is the purpose of equipping the saints? Why does God equip saints first through the apostles and prophets, then the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the work of the ministry? Why? Why does he do it? For what purpose? Well, let's look at the positive aspects of this equipping first. Then we'll look at the negative aspects in a moment. Look again at the last part of verse 12 where it says, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it can literally mean the construction of a building, the process of building a literal structure. It was used in the Old Testament to describe the building of the temple. But the better translation, the best translation of this word might actually be edifying for the edification of the body, the uplifting, the supporting of, the improving the condition of another. As one commentator said, note that Paul does not say for the increasing of the number of attendees on any given Sunday. The critical issue in view here is not the quantity of saints, but the quality of saints. Saints equipped for the work of edifying so that they can then be engaged in edification of other saints. Does this describe the philosophy and practice of your local church? It should because it's God's pattern for real church growth. The body is built up externally through evangelism as more believers are added, but the emphasis in this verse is on its being built up internally as all believers are nurtured to fruitful service through the word. End quote. And Paul says in verse 13 that this building up of the body, this edification of the body, will continue until when? Until we attain the unity of the faith. That we would attain unity. Now, wait a minute here. I thought that Paul just said in verse 2 that the one body already had perfect unity, which came through one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. Why is he now saying that unity is something to be attained, achieved, accomplished? Well, remember in verse 2, he's talking about the unity that has already been established by the Holy Spirit. We're eager to maintain that unity, to keep that unity. Ultimately, though, that unity is secure in Christ. That's our foundation. Therefore, we should walk accordingly. We shouldn't walk in a manner that is contrary to this ongoing unity that we already have. In verse 13, however, he's talking about some of the distinctives and differences within the body that are still prevalent even to this day. I should say especially in this day. Now, one day we will attain complete unity and agreement in the faith, but that will not happen until he gathers his church together at the end of the world. Okay, follow me here. Right now, the body of Christ has true unity in that all true believers, true saints, true set-apart ones are united by that same invisible rope, rope, the Holy Spirit. But we do not yet have the unity that Paul speaks of in verse 13. How do we know this? Well, because we have Baptists and we have Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists. We have denominations within denominations. We have Calvinists. We have Arminians. And those sweet, sweet, confused souls who are a little bit of both. Pray for them. 
We have this doctrine and that doctrine, this confession, that confession, this creed, that creed, this church and that church, this group and that group, groups within orthodoxy that don't at this time agree on certain non-essential doctrines, but one day will agree, okay? Let me give you an example. Those within orthodoxy all agree that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, that the world was created by him, through him, and for him, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect and sinless life, that he was delivered up to die, that he was, he was delivered up as a perfect sacrifice, who hung on a Roman cross and shed his blood to appease the righteous wrath of his father as a perfect substitutionary atonement, a perfect propitiation for sin. All believe that he died, that he was placed into an empty tomb and that he was raised three days later. Those within orthodoxy all agreed that he then ascended back up to the right hand of the Father and is currently ruling and reigning in the hearts of those who are his through the person of the Holy Spirit. We believe that a person is not yet born again or saved unless he has been regenerated and indwelled by that same Holy Spirit. Therefore, we believe that God is one. Only one God, but in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal in deity, all equal in essence, and power, and love, and mercy, and knowledge, and holiness, and justice, just as revealed in his divinely inspired scriptures. We believe that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. We believe that Christ was buried in accordance with the scriptures. We believe that Christ was raised in accordance with the scriptures, and we believe that he is coming back in accordance with the scriptures. We are united and and rest on these foundational truths. But let me ask you this question. When is Christ coming back? When and how will he gather his church? What will happen directly before and after his return? I know what I believe. I know what I teach. But you may believe something entirely different and you would very likely have a a very convincing argument for why you believe what you believe with some very good scripture references to back up your viewpoint. But beyond eschatology, there are tensions in the word which at times can cause disunity and division within the body because of the emphasis some choose to place on them. I'm guilty of that myself. But one day, you see, One day we will attain perfect unity as those tensions are removed when Christ calls us home and the curse is removed, okay? When he raptures us. Just before the the seven-year tribulation period and the establishment of his literal 1,000-year earthly reign as described in Revelation chapter 20. (laughs) Listen, one day we will attain perfect unity. No more division. No more division. No more denominations. No more factions. No more infighting. No more conflict. No more dissension or tension within the body and its members. One day we will enjoy this unity and it will be sweet. It will be so sweet. But for now, we're still waiting to attain it. We're still waiting. Does that make sense? Very good. Paul says we minister and serve one another for the building of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the 
fullness of Christ. You see how that word and connects the thoughts there? Again, this all revolves around the written word of God. That's your application for today. That should have been the title of my past two sermons. Everything revolves around the word, the word of God, parts one and two. I can see it now. I blew it. I blew it. How do evangelists equip the saints for the work of the ministry? Through their faithful declaration of the word of God. How do shepherds and and teachers equip the saints for the work of the ministry? Through the faithful exposition of the word of God. Why? What is the result of the faithful uh, proclamation of the word of God and, and the faithful exposition of the text? Answer, an increase in the knowledge of God. An increase in the knowledge of the Son of God. The more we are in the word of God, the less we will be conformed to this world. The more we are in the word of God, the more we will be transformed by the word of God into the image of the Son. Through the renewing of our minds, which is how we are equipped and how the body of Christ is built up. We read it in Peter's second epistle where he places emphasis on Paul's writings and even verified that they are indeed inspired scripture. He says, consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also uh, in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So he's saying Paul's writings are scripture. And they do this to their own destruction. He warns the believers to be on guard. Be on guard, believers. Do not be carried away by the errors of wicked men, but rather grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that grace, that equipping, that preparation, that growth, that increase of the knowledge of the Son of God comes through the Word of God. The more we know of the word, the more mature we will be. We will be matured to manhood, right? We will grow in our knowledge. And when we grow in our knowledge, we will grow in our faith. And when we grow in our faith, we will become more Christ-like. We will know more of the fullness of Christ, is what he's saying. And this is so extremely important in this age, in any age. I would venture to say, especially in this age, where false teaching abounds, Again, where cults seemingly abound, even in this neighborhood. These cults and false religions actively uh, promoting doctrines of demons, even in the name of Christ. And who gets swayed by these demonic doctrines here? Those who are immature get swayed. The children. Look at verse, verse 14. He has chosen to equip the saints for the work of the ministry through the faithful exposition of the word of God, right? Right? all those gifts of utterance, so that we, Paul includes himself here, so that we would be mature, so that we may no longer be children, in verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. This is very serious. We don't want to be children. The, the word is napios, nay, not, Pios, able to talk. One commentator said figuratively, as in this verse, Napios refers to one who is unlearned, unenlightened, or simple. 
Paul is referring to the spiritual immaturity of a child as opposed to the relative perfection of a man of the full stature in Christ. We must be matured. We must grow in the faith so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. And oh, do we see that in America today. Craftiness and deceitful schemes, immature Christians getting carried away by emotional manipulation and human cunning like little dandelions floating in the breeze. But if they are truly Christ's, then it's his will for them to be built up on the foundation of his word, to be mature in his word, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Son of God, the text says, so that we may not be children. Paul is talking about spiritual babies here in verse 14. He uses this analogy of children because children are so easily duped, aren't they? You ever played hide and seek with a child? done card tricks with a child. It's so easy to fool them. I remember being at a family get-together when I was like five or six. I remember my grandpa taking his hand like this, then putting his thumb up here and moving his thumb all the way down his hand. I was in shock. How could his thumb go all the way from here to here? It freaked me out. How does he do that, I thought. What is wrong with my grandfather? Listen, it's not that kids are stupid. I got a couple of them back there. (laughs) They're not stupid. They just don't have the full truth. They haven't been exposed to the full truth or been shaped by the truth. But what happens? We grow up. We, We mature mentally, physically. We gain knowledge of how things really are in this world or someone tells us or they show us how to not be fooled. And now if someone tried to pull these shenanigans on me, I'd say, that's your other thumb. What do you think I am, some kind of schmuck? You see, just based on normal life experience, we all grow up. We mature mentally, emotionally, intellectually, but how about spiritually? What about growing up in the knowledge of the truth, in the fullness of Christ that we just read about? Listen now, because again, this is very serious. Very serious. Who do you think it is that false teachers and cult leaders prey upon? Mature men and women who are a part of a mature body of believers? Theologically grounded men and women? Men and women who are continually saturating their minds in the divinely inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of the living God? No. Like spiritual pedophiles, they prey upon the children in the faith. The weakest among us the most vulnerable among us, those whom they're hoping to separate from the flock. And again, I'm not talking about kids in the nursery or Sunday school there. I'm talking about immature believers in the pews. Physical adults, but spiritual toddlers. Infants, Paul calls them. That's not my word. Paul says infants who aren't being instructed in then nourished by actual biblical truth. And That's who they prey upon, as ravenous wolves. And it's either done maliciously and intentionally by the cults and the false religions, or maybe more prevalent in our our culture, it's done by the so-called authors and professors and, again, so-called pastors who are oftentimes unknowingly doing damage to the body of Christ and keeping their people in that childlike condition by not carefully examining the scriptures and faithfully proclaiming them to their flock. Cultural Christians, 
seeker-sensitive mega churches who are more concerned with the quantity of the people in their seats than they are the quality of their faith, who are more preoccupied with concerns over the empty seats in their auditorium than they are about instructing the people who are currently filling them. Right? And so what do they do? They dumb down the meaning of this text in, in hopes of appeasing the world and appeasing the community and trying to be as much like the world as they can be. They water down these texts, or they don't preach the full counsel of God. They cherry-pick and twist the scriptures, only preaching the ones that they find relevant or encouraging. Sovereignty goes away, sin goes away, repentance goes away, striving for holiness goes away, blood goes away, wrath goes away, judgment goes away. And the people who come into their building remain as spiritual infants, just little babies never being built up, never being truly edified, multiplied, sure, there's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. But that's only because that type of teaching appeals to the flesh. These men are scratching, itching ears all morning. Multiplied, but not edified. I love what one preacher said on this. Kids don't like to learn about math So we put a big yellow bird on a screen to entertain them while hoping to increase their knowledge. People don't like the truths of Scripture, so what do we do? We put a big yellow bird behind a pulpit. (laughs) If there even is a pulpit. And we entertain these people to their own destruction. It's a tragedy, really. It's not the Lord's will. The Lord's will is that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must mature to the fullness of the measure of Christ so that we may no longer be children, so that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, so that we will not be duped by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, so that we will not be devoured by ravenous wolves who will not spare even this flock, Again, there are positive purposes for equipping the flock, that we would be built up, that we would grow, that we would be unified, that we would, together we would mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and there are negative aspects of equipping the flock, that we would no longer be children, that we would no longer be swayed or carried uh, by, uh, around by human cunning and deceit. That's why. So, we've seen the process of equipping the saints the purpose of equipping the saints. And now our final takeaway for our time together, we see the product of equipping the saints. What is the outcome? What is the result of equipping the saints for ministry? Here's what the amazing biblical doctrine of every member ministry is all about. We're equipped through faithful exposition, which allows us to grow and mature so that we're not carried away by every wind and wave of doctrine, but rather, verses 15 and 16 tells us, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working together properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the product. And again, just like in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Paul uses this analogy of the body. I can see Dr. Luke sitting with him in, in that cell next to him saying, oh yeah, oh that's good, Paul. 
Use the body a little bit more. Joints, members, growth, that's good stuff. Everyone has a body. Everyone can understand this. But what's the difference between us and every other body in the world? Answer, the body of Christ is built up in love, which, by his amazing grace, he provides, right? One commentator said the word for love here is the familiar agape, which is unconditional, sacrificial love, which is the love that God is and so describes a divine love, a love which is commanded by God and empowered by his spirit. We have love here at Lakewood Bible Chapel, don't we? Oh yeah, I see it. We see it. Genuine, authentic love given us by the very source of genuine and authentic love, right? Well, then we can rejoice. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells believers they can rejoice even amidst tremendous sufferings in this life, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But again, we have to speak the truth, don't we? We have to speak the truth. We have to proclaim his truth accurately and faithfully. But we do so in love and, a genu- and out of a genuine concern and compassion for our fellow members. How does the body live? The head gives it life. How is the body nourished? How does it grow up into maturity and not remain stunted like a little infant? Through the instruction of his word, through sound doctrine. How does the church thrive and be healthy and functional? Through the application of that sound doctrine. The, the, The now nourished and equipped and gifted members of the body are all working together properly and ministering to one another through that sound doctrine. It's the responsibility of every single believer to function properly within the body. It's responsibility of every single member to carry out the instruction given by the head. You and I have a responsibility to make sure that we are exercising our gift in order to serve his church, whether locally, nationally, internationally, because that's the will of God for your life, Christian, okay? That his love would be made manifest through you during your remaining time on this earth. That the, that's the will of the head for his body. That we would greet one another. That we would encourage one another. That we would be at peace with one another. That we would be of the same mind with one another. That we would be kind to one another. Tender-hearted to one another. That we would care for one another. Be devoted to one another. Seek good for one another. That we would bear one another's burdens. That we would pray for one another. Forgive one another. It's his will that we love one another. All for the building up of the body. Paul says in Galatians 5, we are to serve one another. We have been given the Holy Spirit to serve. We are made to serve. Jesus said, the greatest among you is to be your servant. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. And what's the best way to do that? Not by watching from the sidelines or only coming in on game day, but by being with one another fellowshipping with one another on Sundays, on home groups, being involved with each other's lives. All by his grace and for his glory. Is that true of you this morning, my brother and sister? Are you truly a member of the body of Christ? If so, this text is for you. Are you truly serving in this body? There are ways, there are practical ways 
to carry out God's will and desire for your life in the church. Come to us. Come to us as elders and ask us how you can get involved for the glory of the Lord. I also put this document on the back in the greeting table out there. I don't know if it's peach or what color it is, but it's from James Boyce, and it'll give you more practical helps as well as a gift of lifts, list, uh, list of gifts in the sections that we've uh, already talked about. I, I'm going to close now. Uh, I would encourage you all to pray. Ask the Lord where he might use you. Okay, to make it a priority to be a part of the body, to be around the body, to serve the body. And I should say, we sincerely appreciate those who are serving in the body, faithfully, actively, who are many, many of you. To the others, not to shame, but to exhort. Again, beyond salvation, there's nothing as important as your interaction with and participation in the body. Be united with the body, equipped with the body, exercise your gifting within the body. And rely on the other members of the body as well to glorify the Lord alongside the other members of this body. And ultimately, that's the product, that's the result. All the glory goes to him, which is exactly how it should be, right? As the head causes the body to be built up in love. Again, we praise the Lord for the amazing truths of his word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's do that now as Noel and the music team come up to close us in musical worship. Come on up here, Noel. There's something about you today that I just really appreciate. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Anyway. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the privilege, again, of coming together and being instructed by your word, being changed by your word. Even your edification of this local body today through... Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We just give you all praise and all glory and all honor. And uh, just thank you for uh, the joy it is to be a part of this body and to be a part of the greater body of Christ. May we glorify you in it, even now through song. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.